you now stand for the reading of God's Word? Our passage is 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. That's page 1079 in your Red Pew Bibles. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible of your own, should be a Bible that looks like this right here nearby. If you want to hunt one of those up and turn to page 1079, we'd like for everybody to be able to see the passage as it's being preached. Page 1079, 1 Peter Chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until, coming, until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all... I'm sorry. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Through now, for a little, though now for a little while, you may not, you may have suffered grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you may not see him, you love him, and even though you have not, you do not see him now. You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith through the salvation of your souls. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Lily. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we pause and quiet our hearts before you now as we come to your word. And we pray that you would... Meet us in this time that you would remove all the distractions from our hearts and our minds. That, Lord, we would encounter you, that we would see Jesus, and that, Lord, we would find hope. A durable, deep hope that would carry us through whatever we are facing in this life. Come and be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, kids, here's a question to get us started this morning. What gives you joy in life? What are some of the things that bring you the greatest joy in life? Maybe we're a little short on joy. Yes. Your niece? All right. Great. Wonderful. Luke? Movies. That's good. Ames? Video games, there you go. I bet a lot of us would be like, yeah, joy. Joy, joy, joy over video games. Yep, Zeke? Six Flags, yes. A place of joy for a kid. A place of horror for an adult, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. You think about it and come tell me later, okay? So there's things in life, so many, yeah, cash, I, I got to get cash here. Being with friends, that's so good. You know, okay, Atticus, last one. Football. Football, all right, finally, somebody said it. Thank you, man. Right here, me and Atticus are on the same wavelength. You know, really, the thing, joy is really what, um, it's really what energizes our life, as my thing comes off here. It's really what um, 
energizes and drives our life, the things that we find joy in. You know, here's, here's a quote I want to give you here, and, and this is uh, by Blaise Pascal, but he said this about joy or happiness or the things that we're chasing after in our life. And he said, all men, all men in the sense of all people, all people seek happiness or joy. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both. Attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. That's a deep and profound quote, isn't it? Blaise Pascal is saying this, this discussion about joy, this understanding about what is our joy in, is really, we're talking about what drives our life. What commands our life? And you know, one of the things that happens for us is that so often we find our ultimate joy in things that are going to let us down. We chase after and seek ultimate joy in things that are not going to sustain joy. You know, I'm right here with Atticus. One of the things I've always struggled to find my ultimate joy in is football. When Ashley and I first married, I was in a place where if the Georgia Bulldogs lost on Saturday, I was barely functional until Wednesday. I got big problems, yeah. But I've grown so much. You know, marriage really fixes that really quick. Like, whoa, this ain't going to work, right? But it's an example of how we, we're just these creatures that are chasing after joy in something that we assign value to. And so often our problem in life is that we're chasing after and looking for ultimate sustaining joy in something that is not going to ultimately deliver it. C.S. Lewis says, don't let your happiness depend on something you can lose. It's great advice. But so often we do. So often we seek ultimate joy in the circumstances of our life. And when those go south, as if you've lived much life at all, you know that so often circumstances hit you like a two before across the face. So often that's the reality. And when our joy is located in our circumstances, we are going to lose hope. You know, I've told a lot of stories about H&I's trip that we recently got to take to Uzbekistan. We took a mission trip together to Uzbekistan. One of the highlights of that trip is we got to meet believers in this faraway culture, in a place where life is incredibly hard, especially for followers of Jesus. They endure continual persecution on top of all the normal problems of life. They too get sick, just like we too. They too lose people they love, just like we do. I mean, life is hard, and on top of that, the fact that they identify as Christians, there is a tremendous amount of pressure and persecution that they face. And what stood out to H&I was their joy. It was a shocker. You'd look at their life and you'd say, man, you got no reason to be joyful. Look at your life. Look at how hard it is. And yet, they were filled with joy. It made no earthly sense. It made no American sense. But yet it was there. And it was a huge eye-opener for us. So I share all of this because we are in a series in the book of 1 Peter that we started last week. And it's called Living as Exiles. 
And this series is all about how do we live in a world that is not our home? How do we live joyfully in a broken world where things go wrong, where our bodies break down, where things happen to us, where we face hardships, where dreams don't pan out, where sometimes we find ourselves on the losing end of so much of life. How do we live faithfully in the face of this? Because 1 Peter is writing to this first century group of churches, and they are living this, much like the the believers in Uzbekistan. They're enduring all of these things. And Peter is writing to them, and he's saying, hey, you're exiles. This world is not your home. But here's how to live faithfully in this world. Here is how to live joy, live with joy in the face of hard things in your life. And I think it's something we really need in our life. Here's the main idea of our passage today. The trials that we walk through in this life, they reveal where our ultimate joy really is. And they give us an opportunity to set that joy on something we cannot lose. That is the function of all of these trials in our lives. So let's jump into our passage. We're looking here, last week we looked at the greeting in verses 1 through 2. And here we uh, see in verse 3, Peter begins and launches into the letter. Now one of the interesting things about uh, these New Testament letters, they're written to a group of churches. And many of them begin in the same way that Peter begins here. As he begins into his letter in verse 3, he begins with worship. That's interesting, isn't it? He has a lot he wants to say to them. I mean, they're facing some really hard things. They're being challenged in life. They're struggling. And he has a lot of things he wants to say to them about how he wants them to live and about uh, how uh, what their calling is and all of these kind of things. But before he gets to any of that, where does he start? Worship. Look at what he says in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Really the whole section here, this all, the whole passage that we've read, is actually one long sentence in the Greek. Oftentimes the biblical writers, whenever they're doing that, they're just so worked up in worship, they don't use punctuation. That's what Peter is doing here. He's saying, oh, before we get into anything about what you're to do, let's just worship. Just join me in enjoying who God is. I want to remind you of what he's done. I want to remind you of what is true of us. I want to remind you of the gospel. Let's worship him together. That's what he is inviting them into and us into. And really, when we talk about enduring hard things in our life, when we talk about having joy, really the key aspect to that is worship. Because worship is enjoying God. That's what it is. It's it's finding your ultimate delight in Him, in who He is and what He has done. So what is it that moves Peter to worship here and that he's inviting us into? Well, he goes through and he talks about the gospel. And we talk about this a lot. What is the gospel? The gospel is not what you do, it's what God has done. That is the essence of Christianity. So many people, especially in the Bible Belt, think the essence of Christianity is, okay, here's a lifestyle, here's some rules, here's the, how you're supposed to live, and if you do that good enough and you're a good Christian, you do enough, then you'll go to heaven when you die. That is not Christianity. It's not the gospel. The gospel is all about you cannot be good enough to get to God. You've already blown it. 
Relax. (laughs) You're further away than you even know. But here's good news, and that's what gospel means. God has come to rescue you entirely by grace. And when that begins to hit home in your heart, it unleashes worship. So what does Peter emphasize as he takes us into our salvation and takes us into the gospel? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us new birth. That's what moves Peter to worship. It's not about what we've done. It's about what He has done to us. You know, this concept of new birth Peter will return to it later in the chapter. We see it in many places in the New Testament. In some places, uh, we might know it by the language of being born again or being born spiritually. And it's a way that Scripture describes what happens to us when God zaps you. That is the essence of salvation, is that God comes and He does something to you. He awakens you. He brings you from death to life spiritually. He takes a person that doesn't want anything to do with God and is going their own way, even though on the outside they might look religious in their life, but yet they are the God of their own life. He comes to someone like that, and he opens their eyes, and he gives them new life. That's salvation. It's something that happens to you. I mean, think about the analogy he's using. Birth. I'm just curious. What went into you deciding... Who was going to be your mom and dad? What made you choose the parents you chose? I'm just curious. What made you choose the place that you were born into? The family you were born into? The gifts and abilities you have that you were born into? What what made you choose those of all the options you had? It's kind of a silly question, right? Because it's ludicrous. We had no part in our birth. It happened to us. That's exactly the point he wants us to see. God has given us new birth in Christ. As a mentor of mine says, you got to be zapped. And that's what God does in salvation. He comes and opens our eyes and gives us new life and brings us into his family. And for Peter, he can't get over it. It moves him to worship. We have been given new birth into a living hope. Now, I know that for many of us here this morning, we're not feeling a lot of hope. I know that. In fact, we're, we're in a world right now where so many people are short on hope. There's many of us here this morning that are on the verge of giving up hope because what we're facing in our life, and we're just like, I just, I just don't know if I can go on. You know, and when you're in that place, like, I get it. I've been there where you get hit by wave after wave after wave, And you just wear down and you get to this point where you're like, I'm just about to give up hope. I'm not going to hope anymore. And what begins to happen is a thing called cynicism in our hearts. And I'm just going to assume we all know a little bit about that. Cynicism is what we begin to do when we shut our hearts down to hope. Because hope can hurt. It can hurt when you get disappointed. It can hurt when you don't understand what God's doing in your life. It can hurt why you don't know why this, whatever this is, keeps happening in my life. But Peter talks a lot about hope here. And he says, we've actually been born into a hope. 
And it is a living hope. And it is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's not saying, man, I hope everything works out. I hope things are going to be okay. I hope somehow God's going to come through in the future. No, our hope is rooted in a historical fact and event. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, that is the anchor of our hope. And it shows us that one day I'm going to be raised. And one day I'm going to know fullness of life with Christ. And I'm going to reign over the earth. That's my inheritance. Notice how he talks about that right after that? We have been given new birth into, verse 4, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. He's making a reference to Old Testament Israel. Their inheritance was the land of Canaan. It was the inheritance that God was going to give to them. A place where they would flourish in relationship with God. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that they, in fact, did come into their inheritance, but they defiled it. It's actually the word that Peter uses here. Some of your translations will show that. It was defiled by them. <laughs> they came in to their inheritance and turned from God and filled the land with idols and injustice. And they defiled the land and spoiled their inheritance. But what Peter is saying to us is that through this new birth into Christ, we have an inheritance you can't never spoil. It's never going to perish. You can't defile it. You can't screw this thing up. In fact, as he says in the next verse, that God is shielding us by his power until that salvation comes. See, this is what moves Peter to worship. Our salvation and our new birth in Christ. And he says in verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice. This is your joy, says Peter. This has got to be the ultimate source of your joy. This is the only thing that will carry you through hard things. You can never move beyond the ultimate joy that we have in life in Christ. And we've got to be reminded of that. And it's got to be something that moves us to worship. So Peter here is talking about this glorious salvation. And the joy that we find when we are rooted in the gospel. But we might imagine that all of that joy would come in a place where things are going well. Maybe that's where they are in this place. I mean, we tend to think, it tends to be intuitive for us, that we're joyful when things are going well and when things are not, no joy, right? But it's amazing how Scripture will put joy and grief together. That's what he does in verse 6. Look at what he says. Look again at verse 6. In all this, all this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He's writing to people and talking about this amazing joy to people who are at the same time experiencing tremendous grief. He puts them together. See, joy is not the same thing as what we imagine to be happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy goes so much deeper. 
And Peter says, you're rejoicing while at the same time you are suffering grief. Now, as we go through the book, we begin to see and it begins to color in all the things that they're facing. I mean, these are first century believers that are living in the Roman Empire. And Nero is likely the emperor at the time that he writes this. And Christians in this day were hated. And they were demonized by the culture. And probably while this letter is being written, Christians are being martyred in the Roman Colosseum. I mean, that's the kind of thing that they're walking through. And yet, Peter says, it's just for a little while. You have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That's what he calls it. That's the word that he uses here to understand the hard things that come into our life. Now, we know about this. If you're drawing breath right now, you have experienced trials in your life. You might be in one right now. You have experienced things that fall apart. You have experienced brokenness in your body. You've experienced getting sick. You've probably experienced losing someone that you love. You've probably walking through relational brokenness in your life or or brokenness in your own heart or struggle that you're walking through or things that don't work in your life. And Peter says that those are trials. That's his description there, a trial. What does that tell us? One of the things it tells us is that it has purpose. The things that you're walking through in your life right now are not random. They have purpose. They're doing something. They're at work in you. Now, two things that he describes here as we understand trial that he tells us that it's doing in our life. First, as we understand trial, a trial is not like, as he's using it here, it's not like you're going on trial, you're being tried for something. A trial is like a testing. Think about like, uh, you know, in medicine, you know, when we hear about some new uh, medicine or some new treatment that comes out, you know, someone has developed that. Usually a pharmaceutical company and they've done all this research and they're, they've done their own testing and they come out and they say, we got the cure. We want to sell it. But what, what does the FDA do? No, no, hang on. Hang on. We need to try this thing. We need to have some clinical trials. What happens in clinical trials? You put it to the test. You say, oh, I'm just not going to take your word for it. Let's, let's prove it. Let's take a period of time where we study this thing, where we see, is this real? Does it really produce the effects that you're talking about? That's what a trial does. It tests something. It, it, it sees, is it real? What's there? What is the substance? Is it true or is it just kind of temporary? And that is a part of what God's up to in all the trials that we face in our life. Look at verse 7. These have come. Have you ever asked why in your life? Maybe you're walking through something right now. You ever ask that huge question, why is God allowing this? Somebody even mentioned that out loud in prayer. I don't understand why you're doing this, God. Well, you know what's incredible? Peter says, I'm going to tell you why. It's the answer. (laughs) You don't always get that. Why does God bring this into our life? Peter tells us right here in verse 7, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. These have come so that our faith can be proven genuine. You know, we're in the Bible Belt here, and our understanding of faith is very, very shallow. 
Everybody believes in Jesus here, right? Everybody's got faith. You know, the moment I meet somebody and they hear I'm a preacher, they just go right into the religious talk. It's kind of tough because you're like, oh, that, that, this, is, this is interesting here. Everyone claims to be a Christian, but yet I don't see much Jesus in people's life. What is the discrepancy here? Well, the problem is you can think you have faith, but it ain't faith. How do you know if the faith you think you have is real? Well, that sucker's got to be tested. And that's what our trials do. They put it to the test. It's seeing what happens with this thing. Is it real? What happens when you put the pressure to it? What happens when you put it into the furnace? He uses the illustration here of gold. It says actually that our faith is more precious than gold. The most precious element we probably have in our world. And he says, oh, your faith is so much more precious than that. But you know... A part of what you do with gold is not only do you test it with fire, you also refine it with fire. And that's what he's talking about here. You know, there's a process you go through in purifying gold. How you do that is with heat, with a fire. You put it in the furnace, you melt it down. And when you melt it down, what begins to happen? All of the impurities rise to the top. It's called dross. And you can just skim it off the top and you, it purifies it. The process that looks like it's destroying it, is actually purifying it. You see, this is what God's up to in the trials that we're facing in our life. One, it reveals it. And secondly, it gives the opportunity for your true faith to be refined, to be purified. Haven't you experienced this in your life? You know, when you walk through suffering and hardship and affliction in your life, what immediately begins to happen? You begin to discover, oh man, I'm not near, nearly as strong as I thought I was. My faith was not nearly as strong as I thought it was. Because when you're walking through those hard times, what begins to happen? Doubts come up. This nastiness in your heart that you didn't know was there when things are going well. I mean, when things are going well, you're like, man, I'm just a loving, joyful, kind person. And then somebody cuts me off in traffic, and I'm like ready to cut throats. Where'd that come from? And it's easy to think, well, the, the, the traffic made me do it, right? No, the traffic revealed it. Same thing with the trials we walk through. Sometimes we think in the midst of our circumstances, you know, where is God? We're angry at God. Or we're just shut down. Or we find just all this stuff coming out of us that we didn't know was there. It's not caused by the circumstances. It's revealed by them. And so you have an opportunity in this time to say, oh my goodness. My faith is not nearly as deep as I thought it was. And, and I'm not nearly as, as loving as I thought I was. I'm not nearly as sanctified as I thought I was. And it gives an amazing opportunity in that time to say, God, work in my heart. I want to grow. Let me give you an example from my own life. Many years ago, I had an opportunity. I was working for a campus ministry and, uh, in the University of Georgia, and I had an opportunity to take seven college students on a mission trip to Russia. And, man, I need to tell you at the time, I felt like a spiritual giant. Now, I wouldn't have said that. You know, most people around me probably would have thought, oh, this a super humble guy. But man, I thought I had it together. 
Because I'm like a leader, and like I know all this stuff, and I'm leading these people on a mission trip, no less. You talk about super spiritual. And we go on this trip, okay, and so we're leaving, and I had these parents look at me, giving their babies to me, and they said, I was a baby myself, and they said, you better bring them home. And I was like, oh my goodness. And so we leave, we leave Atlanta, we get to New York, and I had a co-leader on my team that was a student, and we're about to board that plane to go to Moscow, Russia, and she says to me, I can't find my passport. And I'm like, oh no. So we start freaking out, and so what do we do? Of course, we all sit there and pray, God, let us find this passport. So we fight our way back on that plane, no passport, it's gone. And I'm sitting there, and we're about to board, And I'm looking at this team, and I'm like, what do I do? And I felt so alone. I felt like, God, where are you? I mean, we prayed to find the passport, and you didn't provide the passport. You are not here. And I began to doubt deeply in that moment. But, you know, let's power through. So I had to make a decision. I said, all right, the rest of you, go to Moscow. We're going to get a passport here. We'll meet you in a few days. So they went ahead. And me and this student spent four days in New York City going from embassy to consulate, to, you know, the Russian embassy to the passport agency. And we've gone around to all these places to get these documents. If you've ever gotten them before, you know, it takes about six months. We're trying to do it in four days. And everywhere we went, they were slamming a door in our face. This is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. And I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying, Lord, let this meeting, let it happen. Move the heart of these Russian officials here. Let us get it here. No, 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 no. And I began to struggle with doubt in the deepest way I ever have in my life. God, I can't make sense of this. Why are you doing this? We're doing this for you. A little help, please. Help me help you, right? Because we were doing a favor for God. You can't do a favor for God. (laughs) Finally, we get all these documents, but I didn't in the moment see, this is miraculous. I thought that it had happened because I'm choking Russians. It was me that did it, right? So we get finally over to Russia, miraculously. We get these documents, we show up to Russia, we sit there, and I'm like, how am I going to lead this trip when I don't even know if I believe in God anymore? It's one of the scariest moments of my life. And the first part of that summer, we struggled and struggled and struggled. We shared the gospel with Russian students, and they said, not interested. Thank you, but no thanks. And we as a team got to really the most broken place of surrender that we had got. And we said, God, if you do nothing else, we just want to figure out how to worship you in this place. And God began to go to work. And God began to change our hearts. And then all these Russian students that were like, no thanks, were like, yeah, I would like to receive Christ. And we're like, no, no. No, you don't. Really? What? Are you sure? I mean, God did this incredible thing. And we get home. We get home after this trip. That was one of the hardest experiences of my life. And I sat down and I opened my Bible to Hebrews 12, where it said, God disciplines us as a loving father in order that we might share in his holiness. And in that moment, I realized all that pain, all that hardship, all that doubt, all those trials were for me that I would come to share in his holiness. 
I was so in that moment overcome by the love and care of God that I wept for 30 minutes. It was one of the most experienced, uh, it was one of the most powerful experiences of worship I've ever had. And yet, it was one of the greatest trials I'd ever been through. You see, that is what God is up to in our trials. To bring us to a place where our joy in Jesus would be deepened like never before. And it cannot happen when things are easy. It happens in the furnace. This is the goal of our faith. This is the end result of our faith. Look at what he says in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. This is the result of the suffering that they're going through. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter says, do you see it? Everything that you're going through is meant to bring you to this inexpressible and glorious joy in Jesus. That he would be enough. That he would be the treasure. More than anything that this life would have to offer. For you are receiving the end result of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Peter's saying joy in Jesus is the goal of your faith. Joy in Jesus is your salvation. Salvation's not future. When you are enjoying Jesus, salvation has begun now. And Peter says, this is what it's all about. All those things you're going through. All those hard things. All those struggles. All those doubts. All those whines. It's all to bring you to a place of inexpressible joy in Jesus. So we're going to talk about that real quick. But here's just one question to kind of start to personalize it and bring it home. What are your trials revealing is your ultimate joy in your life? Do a, let's do a little fill in the blank here. Fill in the blank here. What if, if I had this blank in my life, I would be happy. Or if this circumstance in my life, whatever that this is, if this circumstance in my life began to change, then I would be happy. Whatever that this is for you, that's what you're seeking ultimate joy in. You see, Peter is saying all this that's happening in your life is about weaning you from those lesser joys. That you would be brought to the place where you find the ultimate inexpressible joy in Jesus himself. That's the goal. That's what God is moving you towards in the midst of whatever you're facing. Now, if you can take that into your trial, I mean, this is practical stuff here, Monday through Saturday stuff. If you can take that reality that Peter is teaching us here into that trial and in the moment of the furnace, in the moment that it's hard, say, wait a minute, it feels like God's abandoning me, but wait, 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 wait. He says in his word, this is about deepening my joy in Jesus. Now, how can I see my misplaced joy, and how can I open myself to joy in Jesus? How can I pursue him? It's all about how we respond. So let me just stop there for a minute and give us a few minutes to discuss together. 
If you're new here, we do this each week of the sermon. What's happening in you as you think about this? If you, as you think about an ultimate joy in Jesus, as you think about the hard things in our lives being trials that have a purpose, what's happening in you? What kind of questions? What, what are you experiencing as we look at the passage here? Um, I think for me, it is very easy for know this. Oh, joy, it's like, we just need to be happy in Jesus, like in my head. But, and I can know all this stuff, but when it actually comes time and I'm like having a rough day at school or mm-hmm. something's happening, Wade was sick, whatever, um, I think I will often forget that very quickly because yeah. my heart does not truly believe it. And I've really been struggling with what do I know in my brain versus what I believe in my heart yeah. recently, Yeah. I think. Yeah, that's so good. Thank you, LG. Sharon, I definitely identify. Um, Hutch, I, I feel like I was struck by, I don't know if I can really make it make sense in my head, but it does seem like there's a connection with having to experience the sorrow. I think as you were preaching, I was like, I think I've heard people skip over the sorrow yes. and just be like, just yeah. Yeah. have joy in Jesus. Yeah. Like, just be happy. Yep, yep. I think I appreciated you diving into the sorrow. Yeah. It feels like it makes the joy more yeah. full. Yes. And, like, you're, you, you're preaching what our experience is. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you so much, Megan. And I, I'm really grateful that you emphasize that point because I, I see this often in among believers that we think, okay, I I need to have joy in Jesus. So what we try to do is put a happy face on hard things in our life. And we think, you know, if I'm a, if I'm being faithful as a Christian, then I'm not going to be sad. I'm going to be happy. And people all the time are apologizing for their tears. And I think that's a very shallow understanding of what we're looking at here is that it's not, I'm happy all the time as a believer. It's that no, in the midst of grief, I'm experiencing an abiding joy. And in the midst of grief, that joy is being increased. So, yeah, if you skip the grief, and you can do this as a Christian, you just shut down. You know, I'm just going to shut down my feelings. You know, and I, I, I talk to people and they're going through incredibly hard things. And I'm like, how are you doing? And they say, better than I deserve. You know, because they listen to Dave Ramsey or something. And, and it's like, wait, what? You, you don't really believe that. You're faking it, right? Because you're not feeling it. Because you've got to feel it in order to experience the joy. So I really appreciate what you're pointing out there. So I've realized recently that I've been struggling with finding joy for a while. Mm. Um, and like, what's the difference between joy and happiness or contentedness? Like, it's it's a different thing. And I, as you were preaching, I was trying to like define joy. And I think for a while, part of my problem has been like I'm trying to compare it to things that I found fake joy in mm-hmm. um, in my past. You know, yeah. whether that's you know, whatever uh, chemically altering substances that may have been. But mm-hmm. right, like even going to the dentist, like, oh, you know, they gave me the gas. Like, is that joy? Is that, you know, (laughs) fake happiness? Whatever it is. Um, 
But like, I, was, I was hoping, like, could you define joy mm. in a way that might help me make sense a little bit better? Because I think I've been searching for the wrong things. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a hard thing to define, really, I think. Um, joy. I mean, it's something that, I mean, we all are chasing after, and we know. And I do want to say that joy, as we see in Scripture, is different than what the world says is happiness. You know, the world is always saying, are you happy? And what that means is, is your life working out the way that you want it? And in our world, we have, because it's a consumeristic culture, it's materialistic, it is like, it is designed to make you discontent and not happy so that you will chase happiness, right? The pursuit of happiness. So we're always pursuing it. It's like the carrot that's always out in front of us that we're always chasing after and you never get. This is according to the world. Because anytime you get something, I've had this experience, I get something I really want and I'm chasing after and I get it and I'm like, oh, that didn't do it. Oh, here's another thing. You know, we immediately jump, jump to something else. So we're always pursuing. Sometimes we try to get joy out of just the pursuit of happiness, but we're not experiencing it. But the joy that we see here is this just deeply satisfying um, joy in what we already have in Jesus, in Him. You know, that, that, we, that we already have everything in Him now. And the more that that becomes a reality, an, uh, a visceral reality in our heart and our life, I think we experience joy even when we're losing things in our life. And going through hard things. So that's probably the best I can do on the spot. Define joy. That's a great question. Uh, yes. Uh, joy uh, has been uh, on my mind a lot. And uh, I went to a cooking, cooking demonstration one time. And picked up a sign that helped me to figure this out over the years. And it says, oh, live joyfully. And I have it on my Bible. And so I transferred the, the idea of getting joy out of certain foods you like uh -huh. into reading the Word, and you find joy in reading the Word. Yeah. And, and that's been helpful for me. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, the psalmist will often say, delight yourself in the Lord, which is a way of saying that, like, so fix yourself on Him that you begin to develop a taste and a delight for God himself. So, um, at school, there are, first week I went in, and it was just, I was being bombarded like 24-7, terrible culture shock, like, these people talk about things that I've never even heard of. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a very secular, kind of hostile to Christian environment. Mm -hmm. um, and I came home Friday, and I was talking with my mom, and that's when I realized something was wrong. Mm. It took me a minute to realize, okay, I have a problem here. Um, and the next week I went in, I kind of separated myself from the people who were being destructive. Um, and I've been doing a lot better with this, but one of the things that has just struck me 
so much um, is joy. Because our motto this year, or the theme for this year, is joy in the journey um, for the school year. And I've noticed they have a Christian forum. Um, so Christians can come and gather during lunch and just kind of talk and encourage each other. And the Christians at my school have so much more joy mm. than the people who seem outwardly happy, mm. who are well accepted, who are like, I guess, culturally uh, accepted. Mm -hmm. On top. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Christians just have lasting joy, mm -hmm. even when they're not as happy mm -hmm. as the popular people. Yeah. Um, but I think it's the adversity that really lets joy shine. Yeah. It's like there yeah. can be no light without darkness. Yeah. Um, and I feel like when you're not in a place of adversity, then it's harder to see the joy because you don't realize what you have to lose. Yeah. So. Yeah. Wow, that's so good. Thank you, Amelia. And I think this really is one of the most important ways that as Christians living in a world not our own, living as exiles, probably one of the most powerful ways that we bear witness is through our joy in the face of suffering. That's good. I'm new here. This church is pretty legit. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. It's um, encouraging to hear for all yeah. of us. So I saw a documentary a while ago. Uh, it's a Christian documentary called Letters to the Exiles. Uh -huh. And there was a specific episode on it that was about abundance, like having an abundance mindset as a believer. Uh -huh. And I realized that a lot of our problems in the South, we live in North Carolina, my family's incredibly Southern. That's why when I student taught at Dade, I felt at home. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> but I think um, a lot of times just connecting what the sermon was on to the comment that you made a second ago, a lot of times I think believers um, or people who are trying to be Christians, we try to like protect God from our feelings. Mm. And so we say things like, especially I hear it in my own family, like, better than I deserve, it is what it is, yeah. not bad for a Monday, yeah. these phrases that people throw around. And that's not living in a mindset of abundance. That's not living as like a child of the king. Because yeah. like my expectations as a child of the king are high. Yeah. I expect life to be beautiful and grand. And yes, it's hard, yeah. but there's a lot of beauty. But I think that we're trying to protect, like we're almost afraid sometimes of being angry with God or showing him our real feelings. Like when a trial happens, or when something bad occurs, and so rather than admitting we're angry with God for it, or being like, I don't understand this openly, we just use these cliche phrases, and we don't live in abundance, because living in abundance, like, if you have high expectations, for example, if I have high expectations for my <coughs> spouse, and then he lets me down, that hurts worse. Like, if your expectations are here, and then something is hard, it's more painful. Yeah. Um, but I think that that is part of the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, that's what we see David doing in the Psalms all the time. Yeah, that's right. Um, and he calls out to God and says, like, hey, I don't get this. Where are you? And then the Lord answers him. Yeah. And so I think living in true abundance um, takes, like, not being afraid that you're going to be angry with God, but the trial does lead to abundance. Yeah. Like, the sermon was kind of talking about that. In verse 8, 
and like I have in a different translation, but it, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy in the inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Mm-hmm. So it is an abundance mindset to believe that like the Lord intends great things, especially perhaps out of trials. Mm-hmm. And you're taking that heavenly glory and joy and you're, you're bringing it down to earth like in believing it even when you can't see it. Yeah. And that helps you see the glory of Christ, and that's true abundance. Mm-hmm. So the trial is like a gateway or a doorway yeah. to the abundance in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think not being, not being afraid um, has a lot to do with it. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. That's just great, great points that you're making there, and especially how the Psalms invite us into being real with God. It's shocking how honest they are with engaging God, and we're often not. So, let me. Uh, yeah, Can I say one thing. Yeah. Thank you for pointing out that it's that it's like one long sentence in the Greek. Yeah, it's changed how I see how he wrote it mm-hmm. and how I read it now. Yeah, and how to see how excited he gets. Yeah, in his joy uh-huh. in writing that. That's right. Know. So it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it does add something there. Okay, let's close in prayer. Musicians, you guys can go ahead and come up. Lord Jesus, some of us are listening to this and really are in a darkness, in a pit, in a place of incredible struggle. And Lord, this is not just words. It's not just a nice how-to, Lord. it, It really is life. And And it really is, the way to joy is finding joy in Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that you would meet us. You would meet each each person where they are, no matter what we're walking through. And that we we would see this has purpose. And that ultimately we would come to find all of our joy in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.